fireside chat and the fire that I'm beside right now is this hot water bottle on my belly <laughs> I'm following through with a prescription that I was given a while ago by more than one person by multiple healers I was prescribed uh, a series of castor oil packs in order to resolve the scar tissue, completely heal from this wound, recover, etc. And I'm finally following through with it. And I'm not going to get into all of the background of why, because that's for another day. Because this is the first day of following through with it. So let's save the big uh, discussion on all the details on if I actually make it to day like, you know, seven or eight because I have to get to 21 days in order to complete the prescription. I need 21 days and I don't know what has prevented me from stepping fully into this healing before, but I'm not shirking it now. I'm not being in fear. I'm being in a space of love and acceptance to completely receive all of the healing that's there for me. That means I got to take my medicine. That means I have to replant that seed of hope that change is possible. I have to <clears throat> do the castor oil packs. Sure, that's part of it. But the main part is in hoping that it can actually bring change, that it can make things better, that it can heal. So... What a perfect thing to do on Tuesday, 
a rebirth day. This is a rebirth day for me more than others. I'm 42. That's an important year for me in my system. And I was born on a Tuesday. So every time Tuesday comes around, it feels like a birthday for me. It's my favorite day of the week. And this Tuesday is November 6th, which November 6th is another sort of a rebirth day. It is the anniversary or the, you know, the solar return of the time when I really fully stepped into accepting my healing uh, by deciding to have bariatric surgery. I, I had that November 6th, 2010. I had a... Uh, what is called a VSG or a vertical sleeve gastrectomy and that basically means they turned my stomach into a giant long esophagus so I have everything in order I didn't have uh, sections of intestine cut out or re rewired the way that uh, is often done with a what's called a ruin Y or gastric bypass might be the familiar term for some people I did not have that done. Um, I also did not have the lap band, you know, where they put an artificial device uh, constricting the entrance to your stomach. I did not have that either. Um, I did my research and I followed my intuition and universe <laughs> made it be covered by Kaiser just in the right time, time frame. I was one of the first Kaiser patients in California to have the um, vertical sleeve gastrectomy be performed for bariatric purposes because prior to that it had only been done for uh, you know like trauma recovery from like injury or car accidents punctures um, damage from significant ulcerations uh, you know cancer stomach cancer that kind of thing like it was done for medical reasons but it wasn't done specifically for bariatric impact it was just after noticing that there was significant uh, bariatric impact in patients postoperatively that they began to speculate whether it might be an effective treatment. And so they'd done it in Europe for years and had good numbers. And so I took a chance on a surgeon who had had a very high success rate with the other procedures and had been doing it for a very long time. And um, I elected the most uh, forward-thinking surgical option for me at that time because I was struggling with a lifelong um, uh, uh, level of morbid obesity it was it was beyond just a little bit of weight here and there or whatever it was I was 200 pounds in seventh grade you know I, I never had a quote normal weight all growing up I the first time I had a quote normal or quote healthy weight um, even though I don't really ascribe to those terms, I don't think weight is attributed to health directly in that way any longer. Um, I, I was significantly obese, what's called morbidly obese categorically for the entirety of my adult lifespan. Um, the lowest I got was doing medically supported fasting, doing Metafast and a, uh, support group through the, um, again, through Kaiser, through their positive choice thing. And, and that was, uh, I, even with that, I got down to like 250, you know, um, it's still very, very unwell. 
carrying far too much tissue on my joints and uh, very, very inflamed. So in 2010, January, I began the, um, I began the, I, I guess at that time it was the best program available. I don't know if it's still set up this way, but I really believed in the way that their program was set up. I began the process of exploring bariatric surgery because I had basically run out of options. I was raising, I, I had had tons and tons of surgical and medical complications um, after having gone through chemotherapy and uh, 66 courses of radiotherapy, radiation treatment and four courses of MAID, uh, very heavy-duty chemotherapy and multiple, multiple surgeries. I had had lots of issues, and I was raising a toddler. You know, I was chasing after a toddler, and I couldn't keep up with him anymore. And it, it basically just came down to how am I going to get the weight down? And then it was a matter of getting signed up and all that. So by the time I got signed up and, and, and registered and, you know, put into the program, um, it was January of 2010 and it was a six month class. I went weekly for these support groups. It was like, we had like, um, lessons and homework and group meditations we did some like stress management exercises very motivating discussions and um it was just a very supportive group very well led um and i went every week consistently i i think i only missed once because of sickness um and i did a makeup for it i took it very seriously um, but I went into that program thinking that I was going to basically figure out my weight issues, my emotional and my biological weight and food issues and come up with a alternative plan or program, basically scare myself straight, talk myself into not needing the, the surgery. I went into this process thinking I'm going to do the support group and that's going to fix me and then I won't need to have the surgery. Well, after about two or three classes, I think I figured out that the surgery was exactly the tool I needed. And so um, I did it. I signed up for it. I went through the process. I had um, in the in the perfection of of timing that is our um, you know, being in universal flow with your own state of healing. I got paired up with a very good friend in the class, in the support group. We bonded in the class and it came to find out that we had actually been at the same very small private school in Los Angeles growing up. And we were taking this class in San Diego. So you know, and it's 40 years later or whatever, 35 years later or something like that. So just an interesting synchronicity that this person, um, I was really connected with emotionally in my class, ended up getting signed up for their surgery 
scheduled for November 4th, my child's birthday. And so I was already planning on going and being a support person for them, going and visiting them in the hospital and stuff like that. And like helping them get through those first rough couple days, you know, just to be there for them. And I ended up getting another cellulitis flare right before that surgery was scheduled. And so it bumped me up the list of urgency. They basically said, nope, this needs to happen now. We can't wait. She keeps having these complications and the sooner we get the weight down the better so I basically got moved to the bump bump to the front of the line for medical reasons and so when they rescheduled my surgery or scheduled it or whatever I found out that I was scheduled for just two days after my friend so we were going to be recovering in the hospital at least for a couple of days together we were going to be able to like walk laps together and stuff and so I had a little buddy that was doing this process right ahead of me and helped me to kind of allay some of my concerns and fears because they were watching, they were going through it and I was watching them and learning from them. And their procedure was different than mine. They went for the bypass instead of the, um, uh, instead of the gastrectomy. But other than that, I mean, the surgical process is virtually identical. You know, it's a, it's a, um, they do the little scopes internally. They don't, usually cut you wide open unless there's some other complication or unless it's a, a request that you have but usually they do it orthoscopically so um arthroscopic whatever you know they use the little pokey instruments and go in with little tool tools <clears throat> so anyways that was that was the day so november 6th 2010 i um I checked into surgery at 263 pounds. I remember that number quite clearly. I mean, I averaged my weight in my adulthood was somewhere between, you know, 280 and 310, somewhere in there. Um, at my heaviest, I was probably like 335. Uh, but, and this is at five feet, seven inches tall, approximately. Um, so that's a lot of weight for. <clears throat> that tall of a person. <clears throat> so yeah. Um, November 6th is a rebirth day for me personally. I, my whole world changed after that day. You, I mean, they cut part of me away. They took part of me away and my body has not worked the same after that day. So November 6th is definitely a type of a rebirth day for me. Um, yeah. So What do you know about that? It's November 6th again. It's eight years since my surgery. And here I am. And I'm fully embracing the entirety of my healing. I'm going to get rid of this last vestigial remnants of scar tissue. These reminders of wounding. I, I know what happened to me. I don't need the reminders to be this strident and this significant. These scars can recede and I'm not losing anything. I can release these scars without losing any important part of myself. I don't need to cling to these star scars as old stories of who I used to be. I can tell new stories of who I am now and I don't have to keep reminding myself of the old stories I used to tell about myself. It should be hard to find my scars. I should have to search for them. It shouldn't be so easy to find my scars such an old story so yeah 
This is day one of my castor oil pack therapy, and if I continue to do as I am doing, and I record an episode while I'm doing my castor oil pack, the hope is I will also follow through with other promises about delivering content into Open Lines Radio, because keeping promises to myself is important, keeping promises to others is important. I want to be impeccable in my word. I want to mean what I say and say what I mean, which means I'm saying less, but what I'm saying is meaning more. So today's a rebirth day for our nation. We can all choose in America at the ballot box what we're going to agree with, what we're going to disavow who we're going to spotlight, and who we're going to cast out. This is a choosing day. This is a rebirth day. So I've cast so many prayers into this moment over the past few years. I've worked so many issues in my mind and heart in conversations with friends and neighbors with strangers and those who would call me enemy though I call them friend I, I I have had conversations with kin and with you know those that are disenfranchised and all of those conversations are kind of hanging on this singular moment when we do have an option to choose to use our voice so this is what I'll say. There's lots and lots and lots of states where even today you can walk in and register and vote. So even if it's been a plan of yours to specifically not vote, please decide again. <laughs> Choose again. Think again. Vote for all that can't vote. And if for no other reason, vote for vote against the idea that someone is going to use your vote without your knowledge or consent because this is one thing I've heard happening quite a bit with these new um, uh, voter ID laws and signature matching and the different like uh, electronic ballots that are in place there's been a lot of situations reported where people's votes are being switched people are going in saying I'm ready to vote and they're being told they they've already voted there's a vote cast for them so if you're consistently not a voter or if you've never voted or if you think voting is a bad idea this time or not worth it, think again. Please go in and make sure that your vote isn't being used without your will, that it's not being misattributed to someone else. So just double check. Um, there's several states where there's laws that you have to be given time off to go vote. California is one of them. You have to be given paid time off two hours by your boss in order to go and vote. So if the reason that you've given yourself to not vote is uh, that you can't afford it, so-called, like as far as the time to take from work, your boss must give you, according to California state law, two hours paid time off and you can go down there and register 
day of, same day you can register. So please, 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 please go and vote. Right now, the one issue I'm, I've got a kind of, I don't know, stick in my craw about is, uh, Duncan Hunter versus Amar Kampanajar, Congressional District 50 in California. Um, Duncan Hunter is a travesty. He is a perfect example of what's wrong with our representational government. He's a legacy incumbent. In other words, his dad was our representative at some point. And he changed his name. He didn't even go by Hunter. I think it was his middle name. I forget what his first name actually was or whatever. But when his dad retired... He changed his name, campaigned, and so many voters are so lazy, sleepy, uninformed, they thought they were still voting for the same person, literally. Well, this guy is a joke, and he's under indictment. He and his wife are both under indictment for uh, stealing campaign funds to the order of $250,000 and using it for their own personal expenses. So that's who's currently representing us and currently actually on the ballot trying to get elected. Thank you, Republican Party, for putting up another fine candidate for us to choose from. That's who they went with, this guy. So it's between him and the new candidate is Amar Kampanajar, who is a progressive Democrat for uh, all of the things that I like and I haven't heard him say anything much that I don't like so far. Uh, he's for immigration rights, LGBTQ rights. He's for um, uh, um, Medicare for all, you know, health care for everyone. He's basically, he's a compassionate candidate. He's young, progressive, uh, person of color who understands what it's like to be in this system that so you know oppresses people of that cohort so he's there to hopefully right some major wrongs and in any way at least he's not a freaking criminal who inherited his seat from his father so yeah so if you're in that district pretty sure it's 50 let me look at the ballot to be sure i'm going to double check because i have mine here it's filled out i'm just taking it in today i'm going to go down and deliver it it is yes u.s representative 50th district duncan hunter versus amar kampanajar and I got to tell you, that was the easiest decision on the whole ballot for me and for a lot of people I know, because Duncan Hunter is a straight up criminal, so he should not be representing anyone, anywhere, for anything. So anyways, um, yeah, so it's a rebirth day. Please go vote. You can vote. You can find a way to vote because... Our kids need us to. Our kids need us to vote. 
if you're if you have children that are too young to vote vote for your kid if you don't want to vote for yourself vote for your kid i'm voting for my truman my truman clark we talked with him about voting today at breakfast we were talking about you know uh delivering our ballots and we told him about how when he turns 18 he's going to get to vote because i i feel passionately about making sure people with disabilities are not disenfranchised. There's uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't be supported to access their right to vote the way that they are, are supported to access all of their other rights. So I strongly believe that people with disabilities, including cognitive disabilities and developmental disabilities, I believe that they should be encouraged to vote and being given opportunity to vote and be supported to access their right to vote. That's my personal belief. I know a lot of people don't believe in that because they think that like, oh, they're just being manipulated or they're not really able to make a choice or they're not thinking enough and like, fuck that because nobody's taking intelligence tests on people at the ballot box, you know? They should be allowed to vote. They should be encouraged to vote. They should be assisted in voting. They should be aided in accessing their right to vote, period. That's my position. So hopefully by the time he turns 18, which will be in five years, he will have the appropriate supports in place to go and cast his own ballot. But until or unless that occurs, I'm at least going to vote so that he can, so that his, his needs are protected. His viewpoint is protected. I'm going to use my vo vote, my vote and my voice to speak up for him because I'm his advocate and I've that's my role in every arena I step into I advocate for Truman I advocate for my child so it's no different at the ballot box I told you I was going to tell you the story of Truman's birth and I haven't quite gotten there yet I was going to talk about it yesterday but I think I was too sensitive I was too raw I was having a hard time. I'm feeling a little bit heartbroken these days. Just personally. I'm just having some heartbreak. And trying to work through it. Because, you know, it's tired. I'm tired of the story. I get tired of the story that keeps breaking my heart over and over again. I get tired of the script that keeps breaking my heart over and over and over again. But yet it does and it is. And so, when I... I'm dealing with that feeling. It feels hard to speak words of light and encouragement to others. And I know that that's not what I'm called to. I'm not called to only speak words of light and encouragement. I'm also called to share from my struggle. But for some reason, when I'm in certain states of pain, it's hard to make English. So, you know, I don't. English is rough sometimes. It's rough around the ears, rough around the edges. Rough around the heart space. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I don't know. My heart wants to be one way, but these different experiences keep showing up. So 
I'm trying to stay patient and open and understanding and compassionate even with myself for whatever it is that's brought me to this place of heartbreak. I don't know. Anyways, so I couldn't yesterday, but maybe I can today. Truman's birth was complicated, that's for sure. The whole pregnancy was complicated. I was multitasking, growing tumors at the same time as I was growing a baby. And so when it came time to deliver him, my body and particularly my vulva and my pelvis and that whole groin area had been through quite a bit um, at 30, 30 almost 31 weeks pregnant I had the first major surgery to remove the tumors from my body it was one major tumor with a couple little outliers um, and that was the first one that was done that first operation it was just an what's called an excisional biopsy. They just opened my skin up, took out the tumors and the surrounding material nearby, and then closed me back up with a couple of drains to um, pull the fluid out. But uh, what they didn't know they were doing was cutting into the tumor bed of uh, liposarcoma, which sarcoma, this particular type, grows by seeding, which means any cell going anywhere in the body, it grows wildly and duplicates very quickly. This was a very fast-growing tumor and um, quite aggressive, and especially with the hormonal soup of pregnancy and the vascularization of the pelvis, it just meant like, it was like miracle grow for the tumors. So um, they cut it out and put the drains in and basically everywhere that was touched surgically tumors grew back so by the time I had my baby there were um, small tumors growing back by the time I went for my six-week checkup the whole entire surgical bed and where the drains were down my legs was filled with tumors like more than a dozen tumors Mm -hmm. um, palpable, visible, measurable, but smaller ones that were invisible were there too. Um, not invisible, not visible, as in like not viewable, but they were there too. So um, in that window between the removal of the major tumors and then the recurrence, that's when I birthed my child. I birthed my child between cancer recurrences. So, or cancer occurrences, there's the first occurrence and then there was a recurrence. So, um, and yeah, I was stage four for sure, no doubt, terminal, which is why I consider myself <laughs> pretty fucking immortal because I've been diagnosed with more terminal diseases than I can count on both hands probably and none of them have stuck. They've all just been mythical fictions that didn't materialize into my experience because 
my belief in my vitality my belief in my vitality was stronger than their belief in my illness and that's how I always got well that's how I always beat the system that's how I always defeated the you know prophecies of those doctors that were casting spells over me diagnosis is a spell casting diagnosis is a ensorcelment so yeah I was tied up pretty tightly in a cancer bundle when I birthed my child um, I tried though I did try to birth them I didn't immediately go for the surgical option which was offered um, we did inductions we tried I had a, 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 like a trial of labor, false labor, whatever you want to call it, practice labor. I think that's what we try to call it in a positive frame, framework. I had a practice labor on Halloween. I was kind of hoping he'd be born on Halloween just because I always liked Halloween. It was one of my favorite holidays, and I always loved celebrating it. And it was, uh, his due date was, I think, the 28th or 29th. I can't remember now the expected date. But, um... I was out to dinner on Halloween night, or maybe it was lunch. It was lunch, I think, after church, maybe. Whatever, Sunday dinner. Sunday dinner is midday. And I remembered having some contractions, and I was kind of like supporting or encouraging them along with some nipple stimulation because um, that can help increase contraction. So if there's any pregnant listeners out there that are trying to induce, I'm sure you know, but if it's not, just go ahead pinch your nipples a little bit and that supposedly uh, helps strengthen the contractions and I found that to be the case for me um, and so I was having pretty regular consistent strong contractions getting kind of uncomfortable and feeling like maybe this was it and so I decided to go to the hospital to get checked out and see if this was it I got checked in, the contractions were going pretty consistently, but I was having some pain and I was pretty uncomfortable and they wanted to encourage me to sleep and I couldn't. And so they gave me something to quote, take the edge off. They gave me some Demerol and knocked me out. I went to sleep, the contractions immediately stopped and they said, okay, it's false quote labor. You're not really pregnant. You're not really delivering today, go home. So. That was kind of disappointing, but it was sort of interesting experience because I went through a lot of the rituals of delivery, of pregnancy, of expectation, you know, that whole thing like, oh, pack the bag, we're deciding to go now, blah, 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 we did all that. And then we did the more, the other, you know, since that didn't play out, we had another go, which was this scheduled thing of like, you're coming in on this day to get induced, you're going to come in, you know when it's going to start. You're going to check in. This is your appointment time. You know, you're going to be ready. And so I had that experience. So even though it wasn't a planned C-section, it was a planned induction. So it was sort of scheduled. I showed up when I was supposed to. I was 41 weeks. This turkey was cooked. <laughs> the bun was baked. We were ready to come out, you know. It was interesting because I would really focused on keeping him in there. I was really worried about losing him all along the pregnancy. And then, like, you know, and he ended up being in there. It's like, come on, get out. It's time. Get out, get out. 
And so um, he's a pretty big kid, 8 pounds, 10 ounces in the end of it. But uh, at the time, I was worried he was even going to be bigger than that. And uh, I was very overweight, you know, started my pregnancy at 288, got up to like 310 or something. At some point, by the time I delivered, I was less than that. I lost weight towards the end of my pregnancy. I lost weight in the beginning of my pregnancy and I lost weight at the end of my pregnancy and just gained a little bit in the middle, about 10 pounds. So um, maybe 15, I don't know, at the most. Um, because that's the thing, when you start out very heavy, there, there's not a whole lot of room to grow sometimes. Like I can't imagine if I had gained 50 or 60 pounds on top of already being almost 300. I would have, it would have been hard. So my body just sort of made the baby and didn't really make any extra weight on me. Uh, just made the baby. So, I mean, the baby and the placenta and the amniotic fluid and that was about all the weight I gained, about 15 pounds. So, uh, anyways, um, it was scheduled. I showed up. They plugged me in. They plugged me in. Sorry, people are texting me while I'm trying to record this. I should have put the airplane mode on. I always forget to do that. Oh, sorry. I often forget to do that. Sometimes I remember. Occasionally I remember. I'm going to remember more to do that. <laughs> I'm going to remember to put my phone on airplane mode when I go to record my podcasts from now on. <sighs> That's my plan. At any rate, uh, I was scheduled. I showed up. They plugged me in, which means, you know, they get the IV right away. They want to make sure you're hydrated. And they track everything and they start offering you, oh, I had to start uh, antibiotics, of course, because of group B strep, because they are worried about that. And so the immediate thing when you go in to deliver at the hospital, they start the antibiotics right away. Uh, and uh, I think they give you more extra different ones if you have C-section too. But the, the antibiotics they give you when you deliver in the hospital, if you're group B strep positive, that's just because to prevent the baby from getting it, I guess, to prevent transmission. I don't know why. It seems illogical to me, but I guess they think it works. So I agreed to it at the time because I thought it was important. Um, and a little backstory. I'm a rough stick. That means in the past has been very difficult to get needles into my veins, either because of how slippery they were, how sticky they were, how much they would blow out, the valves, directions, I don't know. Like they just, they would collapse or roll over. They'd be hard to find. IVs would crap out of me. Like if I was in the hospital for a week, I'd probably have my IV changed seven, eight times, sometimes more than once a day. I would have to have a different IV site put in because my veins would just not work. And going to draw blood, the phlebotomist would often have a hard time and have to like do multiple attempts just to get enough going. So this was back when I was really heavy. And even as I lost weight, it's continued to be difficult to get 
you know, blood drawn. The exception being the last couple of times that I have gone to draw blood. Um, my current body that it is right now, very low, low weight and very um, pr prominent veins all over pretty much. Um, they have not had a problem the, the past probably two or three times I've gone in to draw blood because I don't have much to do with the Western medical system anymore. But on occasion, I go and let them take my blood um, for observation or whatever makes the humans in my life feel a little bit better. Um, so I agree to it still occasionally. I let them take my blood. <laughs> Last few times has been easy, but prior to that, I had a long history of very, very, very difficult time drawing blood and keeping IVs functioning. So when I went to go and be induced, part of the induction process is they put an IV in your arm and they start Pitocin. Pitocin is the artificial form of oxytocin. Oxytocin is the natural hormone that you feel when you hug someone, when you kiss a baby, when you feel loved, when you're having sex, when you're delivering. It's a natural hormone that your body generates and produces in response to certain emotions or situations or conditions and it is what fuels the contractions pitocin is the artificial form of that and they pump your body full of that in order to get the contractions pumping like boom 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 so they did that to me i had the iv going i had some contractions going it was sort of like not really very productive it's like hit or miss it's like starting to work not starting to work starting and stopping starting and stopping they kept having to move my IV and eventually like I was so tired. I took a nap and the last time they moved my ID IV, they knocked me out and gave me some sort of like sedative to like take a nap basically like, like mild sedative so I could take a nap and rest. And when I woke up, my whole arm was swollen like a bubble because the IV had been running into the side tissue instead of in my vein because that happens to me sometimes when it blows out like that's happened to me actually on multiple occasions and so um the pitocin was not going into my system so then they restarted the iv but the way that pitocin works is you step it up gradually titrate it upwards gradually so that your contractions aren't like a like going from zero to a hundred just it's not good for the baby it's not good for the uterus it's not productive it does not help open the cervix so generally they go up like five milligrams 10 milligrams 25 milligrams until they get to a peak of you know 30 40 50 whatever it is you know some people don't need that much some people just need a little bit but for me they had cranked it up to like 40 50 whatever but i wasn't getting any of it it was just going into my arm. It wasn't going into my veins. It wasn't going into my system. So they kept turning it up thinking it was going into me and it wasn't. So then they restarted the IV, but they did not turn the Pitocin down. So I dilated up to five centimeters all the way up to six centimeters. They fixed the IV, knocked me out. I woke up in the morning. It had shrunk back down to five centimeters because they had cranked me up to the the same full level of 50, 60, whatever milligrams it was, didn't titrate it up and it just started, basically I was knocked out 
couldn't feel anything because of the epidural. At some point they put in an epidural because I couldn't deal with the strength of the contractions on Pitocin. Um, it was just too intense with all the surgical tissue that I had down there. I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate it. I tried my best, but I couldn't. So at that point, they told me I had dilated up to six centimeters. So I went to sleep. And when they woke me up at like six o'clock in the morning to check me, I had shrunk back down to five centimeters dilated because my cervix had basically started to swell shut because Truman's head had just been bashing against my cervix, my unopened cervix for however many hours because the Pitocin was causing these radical contractions and I wasn't ready for them. It wasn't a gradual process. So, um, at that point when they saw that I wasn't expanding anymore, it was now swelling and, and closing shut. Um, I think maybe I even had a fever. I don't know. Um, usually that's the reason they give you for pulling the plug on an induction is if the mom spikes a fever, they go, Oh, it's time to take the baby out now. He was fine through the whole process. He was never in any kind of like distress. He wasn't having decelerations or anything. Um, like in other words, his heart rate was stable. Um, it just, it just was hard. It was a long process and very difficult. Um, and the hardest part for me was the kind of like emotional whiplash of feeling like excitement and then failure because I had done all this preparation and done all this work and so much of my pregnancy had been about like medical trauma and fear and anxiety and just trying to keep him safe that like I was hopeful that I was at least going to have the birthing part you know like at least the birth would be okay I'd be able to birth him you know I felt strong I felt healthy as far as like my body went like I had kept exercising and like I don't know I expected I expected to be able to birth him. I didn't expect to have to need the C-section. I really thought I was going to be able to birth him. I was scared of injury, but I was, I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to make it happen. And so when the doctor came in and again, this was like the third doctor I'd worked with at the hospital that day, cause they were all different ones rolling through. Um, they said, well, the good news is you're going to meet your baby in an hour. And I was excited because I thought that meant I was going to push. I was time to push. I was ready to push. And I just couldn't feel or didn't know. And no, that was his gentle way of breaking it to me that like the C-section needed to happen and it needed to happen now. And so, um, he didn't end up being my surgeon because by the time the prep was happening and I was wheeled over my surgeon, the doctor that I had done my, uh, pre-op stuff with, uh, ended up being available and being there. So, um, it was, it was weird laying there conscious with that drape over you and you can't quite see anything. And, and Dave was there standing behind me and he had a camera. They let him have a camera and they let him take pictures. But then he was taking pictures of parts that they didn't want him taking pictures of. And they like chastised him for it. They're like, 
no, no, not yet. We'll tell you when it's okay to take a picture, you know, because of whatever, like, medical reasons they have for not wanting to document things, I think, because of their malpractice insurance. There's certain things they don't want documented or whatever. So, um, finally, uh, when they lifted him up and I saw him, and I took the pictures and stuff, I felt like, okay, it's safe. Like, it's safe now. But I didn't feel like I did it. I didn't feel like I did it. I didn't feel like I did it. I feel like it was something that happened to us. Kind of like most of the pregnancy just felt like something that was happening to us. And that we were getting through together. You know, but they took him, like, away from me. And, like, I didn't really get to have him close up to me. Like, a little bit, they put his face near me after he was all bundled up. I remember them putting him a little bit by my face for a minute, I think. But mostly he just went with Dave. Like, Dave went with him to the nursery and, like, helped with the cord cutting and stuff like that. And I was just focusing on not vomiting. And, like, they're, like, shoving my organs around. And, like, you can feel stuff. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, like, what are you doing down there? <laughs> you know? And, like, you can hear it and you can feel it. And it smells weird because sometimes you smell, like, the cautery thing, which is the burning flesh, like, barbecue smell. Like, it's just weird. Um, and it's just so funny because, like, I had actually been through that experience once already because I was conscious for my first surgical procedure. I asked for an epidural and to be conscious for that first surgical procedure to remove those tumors because I was afraid of exposing my child to general anesthesia. So, like, it was the second time I had been awake and alert for for that process. And, like, I think after, um, after he was out, I, I don't think I dozed off, but I might have, like, dozed off. I don't think they knocked me out. It just feels very foggy and weird because you're on so many drugs and you're laying down and people are talking about you but not to you and you can't really hear what they're saying because it's muffled masks and you have to ask them to repeat but then you forget what they said anyway. I mean, the anesthesiologist is really your only portal to reality during those experiences because they're right there, in, like you're in their lap, basically. Um, so... I don't know. It's just such a weird disembodied experience. And I know that like, I didn't feel like I birthed him. I felt like he was still inside me for like a couple days, I think. And it wasn't until I saw him laying on the little bassinet thingy, the, the little incubator, whatever tray thing, the clear plastic tray that they have in the hospital that holds the baby. Um, he was laying in it and I was laying down and we had some level of distance, but I could watch him and I could see his hands and legs kicking in movements and in rhythm that I recognized on the interior of my body. It's like I recognized his body language by the visual pattern it was creating of the, the blanket of his legs kicking underneath the blanket. And I recognized my own child being outside my body for the first time. I mean, I had nursed him multiple times. I had changed his diaper. 
I had kissed him, loved him, named him, cried over him for days, but I didn't recognize him as my child, the baby, the thing, the being, the creature that was inside my body until my brain made that connection with the movements. Because prior to that, the birth was such a disembodied experience. I couldn't connect it. I didn't believe it happened. It was like, it wasn't real. It was like, I was still waiting for it to happen because when you give birth at first, right when you give birth, your tummy gets flat, right? Because the baby goes out and stuff. But then afterwards, it kind of like swells back up with like a lot of fluid and belly and stuff. So like it, it kind of looks and feels and you have like all the gas pain from everything moving around in there. Like it still kind of can feel like there's something in there. Everything's readjusting. All your organs are still extra loose because you have an excess of a, of a hormone called elastin. Sounds like elastic because it means... All of your joints are extra loosey-goosey. During pregnancy, That's that happens in order for the pelvis to expand, in order to accommodate the baby, and for the hips to open to birth the baby. Everything is a little bit loosey-goosey in there. And so, like, it just feels like there's still something in there going on. And so, like, I had this weird, bizarre, silent experience. Because, of course, I mean, you're so we weird in your head. You don't think, like... This is not something you're going to tell the nurse. They'll think you're nuts. This is not something you're going to mention to your family. They're going to think you don't love your baby. You know, like you, you just sit with this weird question and going, is that really my child? Because you feel like there's still something in there. And you didn't give birth. You didn't watch it come out of you. There was this drape. This looks like a magic trick. You know, you're numb. You're numb from the waist down. Everything's moving and shifting around. You hear a baby crying and you see them lift it up, but you don't know. Is that my child? You can't tell. They're covered in goop. You can't tell if they look like you because their face is all smushed up. Like, it literally took me two or three days to get out of that weird fog and, and probably off the morphine because you're on so many fucking pain meds after that surgery to get a clear enough head to really look and see and perceive and feel what it was I was experiencing and like go, yeah, you birthed a human. And yes, surgical birth is birth. Don't let anybody talk you out of that idea. Don't let anybody convince you that just because you had a surgical birth, you didn't birth your child. You birthed your child. As surely as if it came out of your vagina, you birthed your child. I, I hate it when this, you know idea of some perfect way of doing things becomes the only way to do things. It's just not true. There is no perfect way to birth. There's just birthing. Birthing happens. And however you get that, that being stateside, however you get that being in the flesh, however you get that being in your experience, however you get them landed, birthed from your salty water into the fresh water to drink, However you get them out of the interiority of your body to the exteriority of our breath. However you get them breathing, that's birthing. However you get that child breathing, that's birthing. Whether they were assisted through artificial insemination. Whether they were a child of incest or rape. Whether they were a child of, uh, uh, you know, cloning oh my gosh are people doing that yet in other nations i bet you they are 
whether they are a child of um, a, a, an artificial womb. Have we built an artificial womb yet? Whether they are a child of a transgender parent. Whether they are birthed by a father. Oh, hi! They're birthed! Even children that are birthed by a father. Well, they birthed that child. For sure and certain, they did. He birthed that child. He did. Sure as I did. Sure as I birthed my child. Sure as my sisters and cousins birthed their children surgically out of necessity. Surely as some of my cousins were birthed. Whether breach or whether head first, whether in call or whether naked, whether clad in meconium or shining bright, whether coated white and thick with vernix, or whether, whether slick and wet with blood, however they get here breathing, they are birthed, and they're sacred, and they're loved, and they're to be honored and cherished. However they got here, they're here, they're sacred, they're cherished, and they were birthed. So I say, this day, this new rebirth day of November 6th, 2018, we all are celebrating all births, all birthers, all who birth, all who were birthed. We celebrate birth on this birthday, November 6th, 2018, this Tuesday. This sacred choosing day, this day that we birth our new nation for maybe this season of darkness. And I'm quoting, and I will find the name. I'm quoting, I will find the name. I know I'm quoting, so I will find the name. I don't know it right now, but I will find the name I'm quoting because maybe this darkness, this season of darkness that we have been in, maybe it's not the darkness of the tomb. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just the darkness of the womb. And maybe we're birthing ourselves into a bright new light and a bright new day and a bright new way. Maybe we're birthing ourselves into a new breath to choose a new path. Maybe that's what we're doing on this new rebirth day. Maybe. That's what I'm choosing to do. Because mine was a surgical birth, disembodied, but I know I did it. We did it. Truman and I got here together, and we're both still breathing 13 years later for me to cast a vote in his honor and in his name. In honor of his birth. Two days and 13 years ago, I cast my vote today in hope that the light is shining again. I'm bringing my love to cast out fear. That's what I'm bringing to the ballot box, love. So I say chihololi, which means I love you. And hello. Chukma. Hello.
Hello, Chukma. Hello, Chukma. Hello, Chukma. Chiholali, I love you. Chiholali, I love you. Chiholali, I love you. Chiholali. Chupisalacho. I will see you. 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 As a chick, I have no word for goodbye.
when I fade away In love, 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 when I fade away So strong, so you are the gun of my eye. 